Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. I know it's not a real applause, but I feel like if we had everybody from the live chat in a studio, that's what it would sound like. I think you mean in a stadium. In a stadium. You you nailed it. You nailed a small (laughs) stadium, but a stadium nonetheless. Oh, my gosh. Well, so great to be here tonight, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing exciting. Um, looks like you got a cool shirt on there. What's going on? You're doing exciting. I'm not sure I'm I've ever doing, done exciting. I, I'm every day is exciting. The life of Bill Real. Yeah. Maybe that's my problem. I need to do more exciting. The shirt. Oh, okay. It's just a. It's a. You know. It's a very unusual kind of shirt for me to wear because it's Marvel. By yeah. the way. By the way, everybody. Okay. Extra credit for the first person who can correctly identify the character on the shirt, and I. I can only hold this position for so long, so I'm going to have to sit down. Take a screenshot if you have to. Put it up in the live chat, and we'll see who wins this one. It's not that hard, I don't think, but it totally stumped Bill and even Dan Vogel. Look at that. Look at this. We got uh, Elisa Galline, perhaps. Loki, look at that. Boom chakalaka. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. (laughs) Nailed it. My favorite was Linda Carter as Wonder Woman. That was my favorite superhero character that was my first crush her and daisy duke really okay yeah when i was just a young kid you crossed over to the dc side yeah i know i i know okay well anyway (laughs) did you have an announcement for us oh and there's maven maven you're a superstar today thank you that's very generous I just had to bring this up. So on my mission, we were like reactivating a guy and he also was a fan of Daisy Duke and he had a a picture of her. And so one of the members that we brought over, active members that we brought over for a lesson, noticed it and and had something to say about it. So the next time we came, uh, Daisy Duke was gone. Um, my companion needed to use the restroom though. And when she came back, she was chuckling and she was like, I see Daisy Duke moved. And he he moved her to the bathroom, like on the back of the door. Yeah. We just thought that was funny. That's my Daisy Duke story. Love it. That's really interesting though, because shame has its uses. And usually what it, its uses is to drive behavior underground. Yep. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. Shame drives normal human expression underground, doesn't it? Good, good. By the Love way, it. I wasn't just making up stuff when I said you are a superstar. Why don't you tell us why? Really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> part one of my Mormon stories aired earlier today, um, and part two will be airing tomorrow. If people at what want time? To story at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, so that would be noon for the likes of you, I think. <laughs> so. No, I'm and I just put coast. a link of it. I just put a link of it in the live chat so people can uh, watch that uh, first thing tomorrow morning. Don't skip this show, but first thing tomorrow morning, you guys can watch that. Yes. And well, now. And the chat was very kind, so I appreciate everybody. We have there such we a go. great audience. Yeah, we do. 
And I think think Bill had something he wanted to say before we started the show. Two quick things. We haven't mentioned donations in several episodes. Uh, So two things. One is that we're really trying to get a push going to have each of you change your Amazon app on your smart device. If you go to your Amazon app, go to settings, go all the way to the bottom. It'll have Amazon Smile. Turn Amazon Smile on. Designate Mormon Discussion Incorporated uh, as the charity which you want uh, some of Amazon's spare change to go to. And uh, and we'll collect some donations that way. And we would really love it, folks, if uh, either off to the right of the screen, um, there's a donation button. If you threw a few bucks at us. Uh, we would very much appreciate it. You can also go on to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button and send some money there as well. Uh, I hope as you've seen, just again, just episode to episode, we are really working hard to bring um, scholars onto the show. We're working hard to dive into history and share new ideas and new facets of things and hope it's a benefit to each of you. But uh, what helps us to keep going is obviously to have funds to pay our podcasters like Radio Free Mormon and uh, to be able to pay the business side of this uh, this entity. So hopefully you guys can send a few bucks. And for those who are donating, thank you very much. It means a lot. I think uh, RFM, about 75% or so of our donors are uh, recurring subscribers. They make a monthly donation or, a, or a, you know, a yearly donation or something that occurs on a regular basis. And those those do help the most because we can kind of depend on those and plan ahead and just want to say thank you to everybody who sends a few bucks our direction. Yes. Thank you so much. And Bill, when you said scholars on the show, it reminded me I have to make this announcement, which is that we had originally planned and advertised to have Brent Metcalf and Dan Vogel on the show tonight. Brent Metcalf has elected to not do the show tonight. In the last like day or two, there were some adjustments made to the show And what we had originally planned ended up kind of ballooning to the point where it was going to take up the entire episode. And the specific research that Brent Metcalf had been doing, and actually is continuing to do, maybe even as we speak, is going to, it's not going to fit tonight. So it's going to have to be put into another show down the road, maybe in a month, but it's excellent stuff. So I just wanted to make that announcement. And so we're going to have to limp along with Dan Vogel. (laughs) <laughs> I've waited my entire life to say that. Yeah, I can. Nobody else can see it, but I can see Dan's face. He's smiling. Oh, well, let's let's let everybody see Dan's face. Let's do it. Let's bring him on. There and he is. Well, there it is. <laughs> okay. I'll try my hardest. Your new name. Your new nickname is Limpalong. Okay, Dan, you are <laughs> awesome. You are here, and we're going to talk. By the way, the title of tonight's show. Uh, I came up with the title. It's my show tonight. I'm in charge. It's okay. I decided to make it like a newspaper headline. And what the title is, is, what is it? It's, <laughs> get rid of the facsimiles, says faithful Mormon scholar. Get rid of and the facsimiles. It's actually completely an accurate headline in this instance. And we're going to start off with uh, an email, which we're not going to show yet because we got to mention who this email is from. This is a recent email and it was from just last month in April, just a few weeks ago. And the person who wrote this email is Royal Skousen. Now, can you tell us who Royal Skousen is? Give a thumbnail, a thumbnail CV of him. Me? There he is. Me? He's not exactly my friend or anything, but, uh, 
You know, he's a professor at BYU, well known for his critical uh, uh, text of the Book of Mormon project that's been going on for mm, at least 20 years. Almost since the Book of Mormon came <laughs> off the press. His most recent uh, contribution to Book of Mormon scholarship was with uh, Robin Jensen uh, in the Joe Smith Papers project. Uh, that was the... Uh, it was the original. He also he also did the printer's manuscript, I believe, with Robin Jensen. And, that, and just now, they published a, a nice scholarly edition for the original dictated manuscript that we only have maybe one third of, and uh, and that's a really huge uh, contribution to Book of Mormon scholarship. So uh, he he is more of a linguist. Um, uh, I think that's what he is a professor of linguistics or some sort of. Yes, I think so. <laughs> anyway, he has gone through every single edition. He's gone through the printer's manuscript. He's gone through what remains of the original manuscript. He's gone through the 1830 first version of the Book of Mormon and every single edition of the Book of Mormon since then in order to do this critical text project, which covers all of that information. And it's a multi-volume work that he did spend years on. Anyway, what I'm saying here is that this is no schmo, okay? He knows stuff. He's very, well, very intelligent. I might add, uh, RF, I'm sorry yes. to interrupt, but That's okay. you actually helped him. I with did, his, but I. This project. I did. Thank you very much for the <laughs> plug, but maybe we'll talk about that some other time, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, modesty forbids me talk about that right now. We're I want to hear this about... story off the air at least, so call oh. me tomorrow. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Professor Royal Skousen, he writes an email. So, here's the thing. He writes an email to a fellow named Noel Hausler. And Noel Hausler, as I understand, it is a scholar, but he's not a, a Mormon scholar. I mean, he's a scholar of Mormonism, but he's not an active, faithful member like Royal Skousen is. And he's not an active, faithful member like John Gee is and like Dan Peterson is. And this email is obviously in response to an email that he got from Noel Hausler asking what he thinks about certain aspects of the Book of Abraham. And what we're going to find out is that Professor Royal Skousen is not in the camp with John Gee of the missing papyrus. He doesn't believe that. Instead, he believes very strongly in the catalyst theory. And what he's going to suggest in this email, which we're going to get to here in a second, is that the facsimiles should be taken out of the book of Abraham and a couple of problematic verses should be taken out of chapter one of the book of Abraham as well. And what I like about this email is it actually shows the absurd ends to which a devotion to the catalyst theory can lead someone even someone as intelligent as Professor Royal Skousen. Do we have that email? Oh, here it goes. Now, here's what I want to do. First off, the date is Tuesday of the email, April 19th, 2022. It's at 11.16 a.m. We can even say that much. It's from Royal Skousen. The subject is R.E. Book of Abraham. It's to Noel Hausler. And then Royal Skousen CCs. Daniel Peterson, John Gee, and Debbie Peterson. And I don't know if that's um, 
Dan's wife, maybe. But regardless, the two main people I'm focusing on are the CCs to Dan Peterson and to John Gee. Now, can we have, hey, Maven, are you in good voice to read this? Can you do your best Royal Skousen impression? And read this? Um, I'm sorry, did I catch you in the middle of a snack? No, you did not catch me in the middle of the snack, but I do need to bring it up on something else so that I can actually read it myself. So, oh, can you not see it on the screen like we can? I, mean, I can, but I have it. I have it much smaller. So, one second. Okay, no, I've got it. Okay, so the whole thing. Yes, and and we'll probably stop you at different places. All right. Okay. All right. Um, all right. He says, "I definitely do not hold a positive view of Joseph Smith's." "Quote unquote interpretation of the facsimiles." Okay, can we stop there? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, this is obviously in response to Noel Hausler asking him if he has a positive view or what his view is of Joseph Smith's interpretation of the facsimiles. And the interpretation of the facsimiles are the three facsimiles in the Book of Abraham. Underneath each one are explanations or interpretations that were placed there by Joseph Smith as a means of interpreting or explaining the figures in. The different facsimiles is but, he admitting is he admitting that joseph smith got the facsimiles wrong oh yeah he's going to do more than that he's going to mm. underscore that and boldface it here he's even going to call it shameful later on I, i'm going to try to take all these data points and be a rational logical thinker okay give your best okay. shot i'm sorry <laughs> maven and, and dan at any point i think that's pretty basic stuff and i want to get your thoughts as we go on too maven okay um so here's what's on my curriculum. I, I actually don't know how to say it. I think VK. Okay. It's one of those words I've always read and I don't remember hearing out loud. Okay. So anyway. Um, okay. At the end in the section entitled Fundamental Scholarly Discoveries and Academic Accomplishments by Royal Skousen from a, about 1970 to 2020, first placed online in 2014 and on page 39. Okay. So now we're going to get to it. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> The book of Abraham was a revelation given to Joseph Smith, who Can later... Can you wait there a second? I'm so sorry. This is going to take parsing. Notice the catalyst theory. It's not a translation. It's a revelation. That's the first thing. And you can go back to the beginning of the sentence, please, Maven. I'm sorry. No problem. Uh, the book of Abraham was a revelation given to Joseph Smith, who later, mistakenly thinking it was a translation from the papyri he had in his possession tried to connect the revealed text to the papyri by inserting two sentences, verses 12c and verse 14. Into Abraham 1. Into okay. Abraham 1, sorry. Now, if you'll hang on just a second, do you have ready to go the text of Abraham chapter 1 that includes 12c and 14 or just verse 12 and 14? I don't. I forgot that you asked for that. I'm so oh. sorry. I think maybe okay. Bill can get it pulled up real I quick. I can pull it up really quick. Yep. Give me just okay. a... This will help because what, what Professor Skousen is talking about is he's talking about the fact that there is facsimile one, which is uh, identified by Joseph Smith as Abraham in Egypt upon the altar, ready to get sacrificed by the, the priest of Pharaoh, right? And the problem is, is that uh, the problem for the catalyst theory is that there are two verses in chapter one that directly reference that facsimile. And the first one is in verse 12. Is something going on there, Bill? Are you okay? No, I'm I'm laughing because what you're about ready to tell me is that 
Royal Scouson's suggestion is we take out all the evidence that Joseph really wanted us to look at those parts of the papyri. Well, yeah. So here, absolutely. Um, okay. So this is verse 12 of Abraham chapter one, where it says, and it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me that they might slay me also as they did those virgins upon this altar. And here we get to the critical part and that you may have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. Now that sounds like what's being translated is something that's very close to facsimile one on the papyrus and that it is really at the beginning of what it is that's being translated. So picture translation, and then you have verse 12, making that connection clear. Verse 14 does a similar thing. If you can scroll that up just a bit, that you may have an understanding of these gods. He's talked about the four gods that are underneath the altar, that you may have an understanding of these gods. I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning. You know, that part's really going to be problematic for Professor Skousen's argument, isn't it? I have given you the fashion of them. In the figures at the beginning, which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans, Ralinos, which signifies hieroglyphics. So it not only does this kind of thing in verse 12 of chapter 1, but also in verse 14 of chapter 1. And there's this connection. So this doesn't make sense with the catalyst theory. And so what Professor Skousen is saying is that these were later interpolations, not by Abraham, but by Joseph Smith. In other words, the argument is because we really need to get rid of these in order for the catalyst theory to work, that this is not something, verses 12 and 14 were not written by Abraham. It's not Abraham saying, hey, I'm giving you, um, uh, I'm referring you to the, the figures at the beginning of this record. It's Joseph Smith. So everything else in the book of Abraham is written by Abraham or a revelation of a record that was written by Abraham in the first person, I, Abraham. Does it occur to anybody that it's strange that the revelatory book of Abraham, which Joseph didn't have any documents to get, has a story that has points in it that seem deeply similar to the facsimile that Joseph thinks they're the same thing? In other words, there's four gods on the papyri or on the facsimile, and there's four gods in the story, and Joseph just somehow that's just a coincidence. Yeah, that 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 happens. That's a good point. That's a very good point, Bill. <laughs> okay. But no, uh, Professor Scouser will not be deterred by that kind of argument. We probably so, ought to send him our episode from last week. But no, you're right because facsimile <laughs> one is obviously what is being described in chapter chapter one of the book of Abraham. It's the story of facsimile one. So it's not just these two passages, but these are the two super problematic passages that must be done away with. And this is what Professor Skousen is writing in his email to Noel Hausler that these things need to be gotten rid of. Okay, so can we go back to the email? And there we are at the end of the second sentence of uh, the first sentence, at the end of the first sentence of the second paragraph. Okay. Um, so starting with the secondary nature of these two inserted sentences can be directly observed in the photos of folios 1A and 1B in the document and identified as AB2. Verse 12C is totally inserted intralinearly, in, sorry, intralinearly, not partially as incorrectly represented in the accompanying transcription. 
and without comment. Did you want to stop there or keep going? Well, what he's doing is right now he's going to the original text. And this is one of the main things that Dan Vogel is going to be talking about tonight. Is he saying if we look at the original translation documents in the handwriting of Warren Parrish or Frederick G. Williams, it's in both of theirs, um, that he thinks that the text, the document itself, supports his position that these are later interpolations into the text that were not there originally and therefore were given incorrectly, by the way, by Joseph Smith and need to be taken out of the book of Abraham in future printings. Okay, so let's see. Verse, uh, correct. Without, and without comment. So verse 14, Maven. Verse 14 is not written on the page as are other portions of this part of the text. Instead, it is written flush to the left, which implies that it is a comment on the papyri and that it was added to the revealed text. Overall, these results imply that all the facsimiles from the papyri 1 through 3 in the published Pearl of Great Price should be considered extra canonical and additions to the revealed text of the Book of Abraham, not integral parts of the original text of the book. Okay, so that now all of the facsimiles, well, 1 through 3, should be considered extra canonical. In other words, these are not scripture. All right? And they're additions to the revealed text of the Book of Abraham. So what he's saying is, that instead of Joseph Smith looking at the facsimiles and being inspired to create the book of Abraham, which seems very obvious, especially for facsimile one in chapter one of the book of Abraham, he's saying, no, it was the reverse. Joseph Smith received by revelation the text of the book of Abraham and then mistakenly thought that it had to do with the facsimiles. So the facsimiles are extra canonical. They need to go. All right. So where are we now, I know we're going to get back to this paragraph when we talk to uh, Dan about his research into those assertions, but we need to get to the, the end of it first. Maybe. Okay. He says, yes, the facsimile, uh, facsimiles are shameful reproductions and have been so from the 1840s when first published in the Times and Seasons. Could you read that again? The facsimiles. With, with feeling. Are shameful. No, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Quotes over reproductions. No, shameful. Um, I want you to hit shameful. Oh, the facsimiles are shameful reproductions and have been so from the 1840s when first published in Times and Seasons. Wow, he really doesn't like those facsimiles. And go on. Yes, the engraver took apart from elsewhere. Um, I do not know how to say that. I'm Hypocephalus. So sorry. There okay. we go. And used it to fill up the missing part. I myself would like to see the book of Abraham with the two secondary insertions in the first chapter removed that connect the text with the papyri. And in fact, no facsimiles or any connection with the Kirtland papyri. The actual okay. text. Go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead and finish that. The actual text of the book of Abraham has many interesting things, but the whole discussion has been hijacked by the papyri. <laughs> it's like the the um the facsimiles are terrorists. Yeah. Uh, they're hijacking the, the discussion about the book of Abraham. But then he also says, I'm sending all my views to Dan Peterson and John Gee. I give you permission to post online what I have written in the ending section of my Vitae or Vita in it was his curriculum Vitae. He's talking about that quote that he's given us with best wishes, Royal. So this is amazing to me. That I myself, this is Royal Skousen, I myself would like to see the book of Abraham with the two secondary insertions, that's the 12 and the 14, verses 12 and 14 in chapter 1 that we talked about and saw on the screen. 
With the two secondary insertions, he's, he's arguing they're secondary, not primary. In the first chapter, remove that connect the text with the papyri. And in fact, no facsimiles or any connection with the Kirtland papyri. So what I thought when I read this is, first off, this is the natural progression of absurdity when one is committed to the catalyst theory. But it also opens this Pandora's box because if the catalyst theory works, it's got to be revelation to Joseph Smith. And that's all it's got to be. And it's the revelation was catalyzed by the possession of the papyrus and maybe the writings on it. But once you open the Pandora's box of Joseph Smith getting something wrong in his explanations of the facsimiles, where does that end? And how does that affect the validity of the rest of the revelation that you believe Joseph Smith received? That is the balance of the text of the book of Abraham. Your thoughts, Dan Vogel. Well, the uh, comment that Royal makes that it was uh, an accident, he, you know, incorrectly believed the revelation came from the papyri, is another version of the unconscious fraud theory. And uh, so it's a psychological thing. And Joseph Smith didn't mean to deceive us. It was all an accident. Uh, he thought he, you know, he thought it was connected to the papyri. And he may have also thought it was a revelation that he was receiving when it was really his own thoughts also. But uh, so um, there's a lot in there, actually, to unpack. And um so I have a few slides. Before we get to your slides, can I just yeah. make this one comment about this? Because this really strikes yes. me as um, I don't want to put words in Professor Skousen's mouth. But as a criminal defense attorney for 32 years, it looks to me like what he's trying to do is remove all the evidence from the book of Abraham that Joseph Smith didn't know what he was doing when he was claiming to translate Egyptian. And it's like a person's going back to the crime scene where the murder was committed to wipe up the fingerprints so that they won't get caught. But this is even worse than that, because this is a crime scene where a murder has been committed. The police have shown up. They've done their investigation. They've taken fingerprints. They've sent them to the lab. The FBI has identified him as Joseph Smith. And now, and now at this late date, Professor Skousen's going back to the scene and trying to wipe out the fingerprints. It's too late for that. What do you think, Dan? Well, um, we've got the evidence for our, our interpretations, and they don't have any evidence, so they don't want you to look at the evidence. They want you to look somewhere else. And they actually, yes, exactly. And it's not, it's not just, oh, look over here. It's like, let's take the evidence against us and get rid of it so you can't even look over there at the other evidence. It's remarkable to me. It's astonishing to me. And I don't know that the church is ever going to do this. Who knows what they might do? But it is similar to what the church did back in 1921 when they, I think it was 21, when they removed the lectures on faith from the Doctrine and Covenants without vote of the church, without really any notice of the church, except, hey, we did it, so... You know, there, there was a moment in time where they removed men's penis from, from his, 
Uh, By the way, that's M I N. That's M I N. Yeah, M-I-N. not M E N. Men's men's phallus um, from from the document. Put it in the scriptures, and then because of whatever pushback they got, put it back in the very next section. Can you imagine the rumblings and and awareness in the believer's mind if in 2022 with the internet they they took all this stuff out and changed it um i don't think it would be a smooth easy transition yeah well what you're talking about is how we know that the ancient egyptians actually did practice circumcision or at least elder oaks when he gave the go-ahead for the for the document change uh, (laughs) no i guess that's what skousen meant by shameful reproductions but <laughs> men's erections, but um, <laughs> swing, swing. But um, wh- what he means by shameful is he he uh, is talking about Reuben Headlock's um, wood cu- or not they're woodcuts, but they're not woodcuts really. Lead, lead, lead cuts um, of the of the facsimiles for the printer and. He's trying. He's kind of trying to shift the blame for the shameful part onto Reuben Headlock, but in Joseph Smith's journal, there's at least two entries where he's talking about uh, that they were collaborating and talking and discussing and making changes. And one of the changes uh, would be uh, what Paul Osborne has pointed out for a long time would be the shaving off of that snout. And so Reuben Headlock's not responsible for uh, the alterations and the condition that the that the effects, the shameful facsimiles are being represented in the times and seasons. Is Joseph Smith, no doubt, told Reuben Headlock to, to change uh, Anubis's snout. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a ridiculous idea that Joseph Smith, the prophet, revelator, translator of the Restoration, is involved in this project of translation. And he's got Reuben Headlock over here just making changes to the facsimiles willy-nilly without any direction or input from Joseph Smith. Yeah. Yeah. So having said that, and I thought that was a really good point because I saw that too, trying to shift the blame onto the artists. Oh, this is when it started, I guess. This is when it started with the church blaming the artists for giving a historically inaccurate uh, depictions of events in church history, well, like the translation of the golden plates. What? They're doing it now. Yes. I mean, Reuben Headlock, it's the same deal. Oh, it's the artist. Uh, it's his fault. Yes, it's the artist, it's the scribe, it's anybody and everybody except for the guy who's in charge of the whole project. It's all those rogue people except for the leaders. It's always those rogue people underneath them. Yes. Well, <laughs> now, if we can, Dan Vogel, you presented some slides because I understand that you disagree with one of Professor Skousen's main points in this email regarding chapter one verses. 12 and 14 of the book of Abraham being later uninspired insertions by Joseph Smith and not part of the original text. Well, Skousen uh, isn't the only one who attempts to remove those portions of verses 12 and 14 in the first chapter of Abraham uh, 
Mulestein and Ghee also do it. And you and it's also kind of tied to anybody that holds the catalyst theory. So what we have here is the motivation for removing the references to facsimile one. Okay. So one motivation would be the facsimiles are shameful, I would say rather, fraudulent reproductions. And that's Royal Skousen just said that. Or Joseph Smith's explanations of the facsimiles are incorrect. That's Robert Rittner. Or <laughs> the facsimiles would not have existed in Abraham's day. That's hmm. John Gee. That's so an important point, isn't it? Get, he wants to get rid of them because the facsimiles actually come from the Ptolemaic era for the Book of Dead and Book of Breathings. Which, which is like 300 BCE, right? Yes. Instead of 1800 BCE, which is around when Abraham would have lived. Exactly. And the last one references, yeah, references to the facsimile, facsimile one in the text bind the translation to the horror or Horus papyrus and are problem problematic to the catalyst theory. Vogel and Medcalf. <laughs> That's my little joke. Okay, so <laughs> it's not just us. It's it's RFM and Bill Real. It's, and maybe perhaps Mark Asher's McGee and Don Bradley. <laughs> well, uh, we'll see here how much how, how uh, some of the people around those those kind of Mormon scholars, others that are a little more quiet, mm -hmm. uh, also have some doubts, but and want to remove those passages. So, uh, Maven, can you turn to the next passage or next slide, please? Okay, here's the passage in question from, this is the manuscript A of the Book of Abraham in Frederick G. Williams' handwriting in the first page. We're looking at Abraham 1 verse 12. Is there any way to increase the size of that? It's pretty faint and hard for me to read. It's hard for me to read without my glasses, too. But <laughs> my glasses we'll are not going to help with this. One option is you won't be able to see the windows at the top, but in the bottom right hand corner of that StreamYard screen, oh. there is a screen expander. It'll take up your whole, you know, take up more space. So it gets a little bit. Okay. That's okay. Because I know that it, that's uh, transcribed below it, but I think that the actual. Oh, document itself is going to be important for seeing. Okay. Where these... Yes, yes. Yeah, you're talking about the actual document. Yeah, in that square, and at the bottom, it's a whole paragraph next to that character in the left-hand margin. But at the last two lines, if you can look closely, you'll see them kind of curving upways, and that the very last line is only like a half of a line trying to be squeezed in between the two verses and it begins with a parenthesis and it's like very obviously that part at least seems to be a, a, a later edition by the uh, way everybody excuse me anyway i'm sorry dan can we stop putting comments up on the screen just for right now because down below you can see where it's transcribed what dan is talking about where it has a parenthesis oh, yeah. this commencement of this record and I just didn't want that to be obscured. So it's been read uh, by Maven that, and it says, uh, 
I'm starting at the third to the bottom line, halfway across, and and that you might be have a knowledge new new line of this altar. I will refer you to the representation that is at the new line commencement of this record. So, so we have several parts there. You can see how um, uh, they they have an opportunity here to try to. Uh, fudge around with the text. So uh, next uh, slide, Maven. Maven, next. Oh, there we are. I Thank think you. It is the next slide. Yeah, so it has the same part from the Frederick <laughs> Williams. Yes, but it has the Royal Scows and there's the Royal, Royal right there. Okay, so basically, it kind of reminds me of a growing up Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> this is the. Uh, letter that we just read, that Maven just read, and the part uh, that we're dealing with is that um, that he's talking about the um, its secondary nature of these two ins uh, inserted sentences can be directly observed in the photo. So we're looking at the photo and he thinks, but just by looking at it, you can tell that the two sentences can be directly observed, that these are secondary, that they were additions. But it's not all that easy. Okay, uh, so we'll look at the next sl uh, slide, Maven. Okay, this is uh, John Gee in his book, uh, Introduction to the Book of Abraham. Uh, Abraham 112 was squished in two lines of smaller handwriting in the space at the end of the paragraph between Abraham 112 and 113. So these last two lines are squished. And the so we can look at the next slide. And this is where uh, uh, Skousen says that it's not just the two lines for him. It's not for Gee really either, but it's not the two lines. It's the total insertion was interlinearly, not partially, right, added. And so up above, you can see I removed the whole portion that talks about the bedstead. And you would see that in order to remove it so that it would still be grammatical would leave too much space. For them to come back and 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 fill it in, so that doesn't work. Dan, I thought this was particularly brilliant on your part to simply use some Photoshop to take yeah. out the offending passage as far as Professor Skousen is concerned, yeah. and see what it would look like if we actually did take out that passage. Yeah. And you're right. There's just too much space there. There's the nothing. Uh, there's no spaces like that anywhere in the rest of the document. It would require for Professor Skousen to be correct that this was written down with the space there, that huge space. Yeah. And then later on to have that passage put into that space, which was just really fortunately left in order yeah. to make room for the passage to be put there. So you have to remove three lines, not just two in order in for it to make sense you'll see a little bit later that uh how various people have tried to f imagine how it, 
it was uh, redacted to get what we got. And there's only this taking the whole thing out or dividing it in a different place is the only way to make it work. So uh, we'll go for the next slide, Maven. Okay, so now we have um, John Gee. So he says the Book of Abraham actually reads smoothly without these additions. So he's implying here that it's not just those two lines. You, it re, in order for it to read smoothly, you have to take out three lines. Um, thus, these statements in the text uh, seem to be 19th century additions approved by, if not made by, Joseph Smith. So he and uh, Skousen are basically on the same page. Okay, Maven, the next slide, please. Okay, so here we have, uh, this is the Joseph Smith Papers uh, with Robin Jensen and Brian Halgood. And they want to represent this in typescripts, so you can see the angled brackets on the second to the bottom line. They put the angled bracket after I and at the end of the second line. What does an angled bracket mean in a transcription like this? Oh, that it was either inserted or added above the line interlinearly, or they usually say intralinearly. So it, it would include sublinear, linear, sublinear additions and interlinear in between the line. Um, so, so Brian Halgood and Robin Jensen's book on the uh, the the Abraham Egyptian papers follows in their transcription. Thank you. Yes, that's it. Follows in their transcription with these. What do you call them? Pointed, pointed brackets or what? Angled brackets. Angled brackets. Angled brackets. That Angled. follows basically what it is that Royal Skousen and John Gee are saying. Correct. Yes, and the reason why they put it where they put it is that if you see the first arrow on the left hand side is the point at which the line starts going upward. And so they, they and, and it's logical that say they want to add something they that would take more than one line, it would take two lines, you would naturally want to go up and leave room for the a little bit of the second line. So it's it seems logical. The only problem is it's not grammatical. It doesn't make any sense to end with and that you might have a knowledge of the altar <laughs> makes no sense. You know, what? What? It's a sentence it, fragment. Yeah, it's a sentence fragment. Why would you leave it like that? So if you were going to add it later, the next logical place, and I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but the next a full sentence, at least, you might end it with, uh, and that you might have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation. And remember, they're translating right next next to facsimile one. So they could have, logically speaking, they could have ended right there, and not added any and not added any more until later. Came back and and added that is. The only other place I can record. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The only other place I can see where a logical period would be yeah. in this would be previous, where it says, 
that they might slay me also as they did those virgins upon this altar, period. That yes. makes sense. Yes. When I go and look at these manuscripts for the book of Abraham, the few that I can find online, it appears as though there isn't really spaces left. Like it's all the line spaces are used up. Yes. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So it seems strange that in this sudden moment when we need it to be, there's this space. And then later after the fact, we're able to now go fill in that space because in the other manuscripts, there isn't any space. Okay. And so I, I, so I'm also agreeing with you that it seems like this was, we could almost assure that this was done at the time. Yes. That now, the other writing was put on the document. Brent, my buddy, Brent has explained to me and see if I can get this right. That you got to take the thing off the bottom, Maven. Yeah, get Paul Osborne out of there, will you? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Paul. So, so uh, Brent's theory is if you look at the photo that he drew, the, they're drawing characters and then translation, character, translation. And that uh, Frederick G. Williams anticipated the next uh, line. They had stopped for some reason or whatever and wrote the character and uh was committed to that and when you say the character you mean the in the margin in the it looks margin. like the backward e yeah yeah in the margin um and so he was committed to that and so he purposely uh tried to veer upward and uh um leave some space my my oh. argument is though in the next slide is that it, he made upward slopes at the end of paragraphs on, uh, you know, typically because what we're looking at is an unlined paper. Okay. And so uh, Robin Jensen and, and, and mostly Robin Jensen, but it's in the Jensen Helglid volume that explain that this blank piece of paper was larger and it was torn in half and that, Frederick G. Williams wrote on one of the blank pages and Warren Parrish wrote on the other uh, blank page that was torn off of that page. And they were both writing simultaneously as Joseph Smith was dictating. And this is uh, pr pretty well established because there are like three corrections that they had to make during the dictation process. And they would, Joe Smith would um, um, say, make a, say a word and change his mind. And they would both in line cross out the word or words and then continue on the same line with the correction. And it's in both manuscripts. So you know, one isn't just copying the other because they would have just left out the correction. So with those kinds of changes, you the the most the simplest and most logical uh, interpretation of that evidence is that they're both writing simultaneously, which causes a problem with anyone who wants to take out that passage from Frederick G. Williams. Not only is there a space, but if we can go to the next slide, Maven. So Warren Parrish is going to have the same passage in his transcription yes. of the dictation. Right. Well, on this one, 
it happens to be at the bottom of the page. But you can see, again, if, if there was more missing, it would be too large of a space. But uh, this is Warren Parrish, and you can see he gets, uh, I will refer you to the representation that is lying before you. And he crosses that out because it doesn't make any sense to readers if they're going to publish this. It's not lying before them and necessarily. And it makes sense to is. everybody in that room at the time. Yeah. But it is to these uh, Joseph Smith and Warren Parrish and, and Frederick G. Williams. So um, they cross that out and they put, they add uh, in the bottom margin, they add at the commencement of this record. So you can see there's a, right at the point where I was pointing out, I refer you to the representation, there's a hesitation. How long? A few minutes, a moment, a day, you know, who knows? Um, they come back and, and fix it. So, should, uh, Maven, can we have the next slide? So here's a, like a, you can see both of them working. So they come up to the that I will refer you to the representation and that's exactly where the emendation begins. Brent would say that uh, Frederick G. Williams, and he's probably right about this part uh, especially, is that Frederick G. Williams is writing slower. He's not really uh, probably that as good as Warren Parrish at uh, writing from dictation. And, uh, and so he doesn't hear or get he doesn't hear the part that is lying before you. Uh, he's still writing. And so when Joe Smith wants to make a change, uh, Frederick Williams is going slower. So he doesn't write it down. and He doesn't have to. He just waits for the final version and writes that. So but as you can see, this explanation here makes it very problematic for the catalyst theory people that, uh, of trying to remove the whole passage. It's not as simple as Skousen uh, makes it sound in his uh, take, just take out the whole thing because it was added later. It's not that easy to do. Let me ask a question here. So yeah. Skousen's theory would require that when they got done with that page, that gap was there. And then they went back later and filled in that gap, correct? Well, Skousen has given a very simple statement. He may have nuances and things that he didn't include. So I'm going to let him have, a, you know, if he can get out of it, I'd like to hear it. The I'd reason like I say that. His response to this, because he is, is, is a textual critic, you know, himself. Yeah. I'd like to see, I would like to hear his explanation. I would like to give him a chance to explain. It sounds, at least to me, like that gap would have to be there at the end of that page, that they would have written the next symbol down and then yeah. gone back and put in. But I just want to note the thing I said earlier. Here's the Book of Abraham manuscript. The only time you get spaces is when that that symbol completely ends and they leave the rest of that line blank. And if I go through these pages, notice there aren't gaps. These pages, they used every single well, there's line. There's going to be another one uh, pretty soon. Right there. Okay, let's go back right here. Back. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Between the first two, there's a gap. And the reason why that gap is there is because that's where Parrish is copying the two 
the two simultaneous documents, he's copying that information mostly from his own into there. And that's where his ended. And that's where, and then that gap, that's where he picks up with what he, his, his uh, first um, dictated manuscript ended right there. So that's why that gap occurs there. And that gap is much smaller than the one that you're that would be proposed by Skousen. Well, that's that's in the translation book, the finalized translation. They were copying from these dictated manuscripts into this. It, was, it used to be in a book. See that wavy line on on the right hand. I mean, the left hand side. It's wavy. Well, yeah. They cut all the pages out of the book. We don't have the book anymore, and it was a kind of a companion book to the Gale, or the Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language. Uh, it was a kind of a companion volume. So uh, it was, it's it, what, what you would call the finalized translation. It's the complete, most complete of any of the extant documents that we have. And it includes the first three verses of, of the Book of Abraham that isn't anywhere else. In, W.W. Phelps's handwriting. Now, W.W. Phelps wrote those first three verses back in July, and Warren Parrish and Frederick G. Williams wrote their documents, most likely, probably uh, in November. It has to be at least November. October because Warren Parrish wasn't around yeah. until October. Warren, Warren Parrish was hired by Joe Smith as a scribe on the 29th of October. And uh, on the 19th of November and the 20th of November, well, 19th of November, Joseph Smith uh, says that he went with with w, with Warren, Warren Parrish and Frederick G. Williams to, to um, look over the temple as it was being constructed. And then right after that, all it says is, and we made good progress in the translation. So um, the implication is that the two people are there that's when they're all together and they're translating that's the only passage we have that talks about that and then they translate on the 20th and then again on the 24th and 25th both copies of the document wouldn't have had the big gap that you that Skousen would need no again unless he unless he has no, some loophole that he makes it work but it's it's highly unusual there's yeah. no other example in yeah just in, to show the rest Frederick, of those i mean again in Frederick G Williams uh in his document, there are no gaps. Yeah, like it seems that. like they're begging. When we're done with this part, can we go back to the the one before it that we left to go there, Bill? Because I wanted yeah, to yeah. underscore something that I think Dan has touched on. Is it this one? Yes. Okay. So in the Frederick G. Williams, and this is uh, apparently this is the this is the way it is in the um, the Brian Hoglet and Robin Jensen book, and that you might have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation. And then they believe that what was interlineated later, what is secondary is the words or the phrase, that is at the commencement of this record. But that is me. That's you? That's me. That one's me. You did they that? Want, <laughs> they want to put the thing uh, after uh, that you may have a knowledge of this altar. Oh, well, that makes no sense at all. That's where they put it. Right before the I, I will refer you to the representation. 
And so if you go back the knowledge way, of this, they wanted to have it, and that you may have a knowledge of this altar period. Yeah, Maven, go back one more. Okay, well, you, you know, one more. <laughs> Sorry, because that's Warren Parish. There's well, Frederick go, G. Williams. One more again. <laughs> okay, there we are. So, see Robin Jensen at the bottom and Brian Halglid's uh, thing and page. Uh, did it say one ninety five or something like that? Um, uh, yeah, one ninety five. So where I have the two arrows, the first arrow is where they want to put, and I and I put the uh, right angle, if you can see down there, second to the bottom of the line, they put it after altar. So they're suggesting in their book, and you can go and check it, um, that it that it read that you may have a knowledge of this altar. And that's where it ended. And then they put the, the angled bracket before I. And then they added, I will refer. That's because they're, they are looking at where the line goes up. And it goes up right where they put that right angle. And they're simply looking at it in that fashion. Like mm -hmm. it's as if um, Frederick G. Williams either intentionally went up at that point to leave room for that next little line as if he knows it's coming yeah as if he's he knows well so he he's intentionally putting the making the line go up that's the that's the logic that they're following is it it's an intentional line going up to make room for the second little line to finish the sentence so and i and i'm telling saying and brent does too that you can't go by this line going up because the, all the lines go up, uh, almost all the lines after the, at the ends of the paragraphs because Frederick G. Williams doesn't have any lines to guide him. And it's a lineless paper. He's doing a lot better than I would do, but yes. So there's two problems, like you said. The first and he's is in a that, hurry. And he's in a hurry. He's got to catch up uh, with Warren Parrish. So the first yeah. problem is that this isn't the only time that his lines go up at the end. You showed those other examples of Frederick G. Williams in his writing where his lines go up as he gets toward the end of the, the line. And the second thing that's just overwhelming to me is that it doesn't make any grammatical sense right. to stop there. That's a yeah. sentence fragment. It so, begs for something to be included after it. Yes, something. Yes. Like, <laughs> I will so refer you to the commencement. So I don't know. I can't. I can't say. Well, that's where where it ended. I'm just saying that would uh, possibly work in their minds. It could possibly work. I refer you to the representation that's that's obviously right there, and they could have ended there and came back and added the rest after they had gone on further, um, but they couldn't have added the whole thing. Can we go to that slide again that has both of the transcriptions from Warren Parrish and Frederick G. Williams? And Maven, I think you might want to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to say I, when I am writing and I run out of room, it's usually at the very end of the page that I start squishing things, um, not in the middle at the top. I don't usually know that I'm going to be running out of room. I need to start squishing now. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, and then was it this yeah. slide? Right there. Because in the Warren Parish document, there's no problem with going up. It's all very straight across. I think he might be the superior scribe. But 
the lines yes. that is lying before you are marked out in the document, but it's a straight line. And then underneath it, it says at the commencement. Well, they're crooked, actually. Are they crooked? Well, I, I only have a straight line. This, this is this is a standard way, but if I was technical, I would have uh, lined out each word. Okay. Well, let's put it this way. If, if we look at, if we actually can have that document where Warren Parrish is writing, and you can see what I'm talking about, because yeah. it is clear. <laughs> go ahead. If we can go back one slide. I think it's one. There you are. Okay. See how he, oh. his, his marking out is a slash. Oh, well, his marking out, yes, is a slash that's at an angle. But I meant the lines themselves Yeah. are very straight across. And it is clear yeah. that even if you mark out that is lying before you, that what he is writing without any problem, and doubtless as he's hearing it being dictated by Joseph Smith, takes him at least up to the word representation. So what he has is yeah. there is, and that you might have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation. And ending it there doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't help because what representation is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the representation of facsimile one where it has those same gods identified by the same names that they're talking about here. Or at least this is the altar that's in facsimile one. So I think this is a lost cause for Professor Skousen. But necessity is the mother of invention. And right now, his necessity is to get these verses out of there, along with the facsimiles. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't think they've looked at this as very carefully, actually. And uh, they make statements because they kind of know they're not going to be scrutinized by fellow apologists, especially. So maybe they might want to take a second look. That's what I'm trying to do is let's take a second look at this before you go on with your catalyst theory. Why wouldn't they be <laughs> criticized by other historians and scholars inside the church? Um, the, the, there is a kind of silent code not to question each other out loud uh, in public, uh, especially with critics around. <laughs> so. Um, they're starting to be, that's starting to crack somewhat, you know, with Brian Hauglid's statement, you know, uh, of disagreeing with uh, Guy and Milstein's um, apologetic. And um, even even Ashurst McGee's uh, in that um, in the your, book we used last week, that paragraph was a little ambiguous, but by the footnotes, you could tell what he was doing. That also yeah, seemed well, to be. And also uh, Matthew Gray, who is a specialist in Hebrew, in the same book, uh, takes on Guy and Guy's uh, uh, argument that the Gael, grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, <laughs> had to be uh, uh, written in uh, 1836 instead of 18, uh, July 1835 when it was begun and and probably ended in October of 1835. He actually wants to date it way after the Book of Abraham's finished, right? Uh, because uh, they, he wants his reverse translation theory. Um, in the first part of 1836, because that's when Joseph Smith was taking Hebrew lessons, and he even tried to say that Satius, being a Sephardic Jew and having a special uh, 
a transliteration technique instead of a it's like au and things like that uh that that there were signs and he tried to pick on some sort of minor thing that satius does uh and and say that it it the gale shows evidence of satius uh, the lessons he gave joseph smith um and ww phelps of course because ww phelps is the actual guy that that wrote in the gale according to them but no that's not true at all uh it was all joseph smith's work and as as you guys masterfully pointed out and used the the kinderhook plates to show joseph smith uh, regarded the gale as authoritative you know so uh so satius anyway there is no signs of satius in the gale whatsoever and uh Matthew Gray, Matthew Gray takes uh, uh, Guy, uh, Guy to task on that. So Guy and Milstein are getting more and more isolated over there with Peterson, and their their uh, what I call fundamentalistic apologetics, and then um, the majority is starting to accumulate of scholars, not like lay apologists lay apologists kind of follow peterson's uh line of thinking uh and they're fundamentalists literalists and then there's a whole group of others that are like new scholarship coming up that are more influenced by by uh, let's say relativistic postmodern philosophy you know and so um uh, they're starting to be isolated, like I say, and they're becoming more in the minority with scholars, even believing scholars. Dan, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you make of the fact that Royal Skousen, obviously a believer in the catalyst theory and not the missing scroll theory, is CCing his response to both John Gee and Dan Peterson? Well, at first when I read that, it sounded like, well, you can tell them because uh, I don't care if they disagree with me. It sounds like that, but I, I, they, they, they seem to. Uh, pro I don't know about Peterson, but I know that Skousen um, believes the same way about these uh, facsimiles. He doesn't even know if Joseph Smith did it. He he assumes Joseph Smith was responsible for the facsimiles, but. We can't prove it, he says. So uh, that that kind of gets you right close to the edge of going all the way to what Skousen says to get rid of them entirely. Because well, after all, we don't we don't really know if Joe Smith gave those explanations or not. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so well, we don't really know if he gave us any of the text of the entire Book of Abraham by that standard. Well, he published them as editor of the Times and Seasons. Yeah, but that's just a name, you know. Yeah. Uh, just editor doesn't mean he knows what's being published just because his name's editor. You've heard that yeah. one before too, I'm sure. Oh, you well, you know, maybe they published him without his authority because he was too busy. Just but, like uh, the facsimiles <laughs> and the interpretations of the facsimiles. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, I don't know. Uh, Are we done with your slides? No. We all we we're done with verse twelve. Now we're going to verse fourteen, which is a little easier. Okay. Okay, Maven. And there it is. That doesn't so, look easier to me. It is. Um 
So this is page two of uh, Frederick G. Williams' document. It's still an unlined, the other side of the unlined paper that Warren Parrish is also writing on. But he, he takes he takes up more space as he's writing, and Frederick G. Williams writes smaller, more cramped anyway. But so we have this, and it says at the bottom. Well, uh, we read that earlier which is uh, that you may have an understanding of the gods. I have given you the fashion of them at, in the figures at the beginning. Which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans uh, calling us? So this is verse 14. And it's at the top of page two. So it's tempting for these apologists to say, oh, that was all added. You know, you could tell. And... Maybe can you get to the next slide? Are you saying that this text that's that you just yeah. read is all in that box at the top? Yes. And they're saying it was just added? Yeah, it, <laughs> it was added to the top margin. Well, this is an online pay, paper, you know. And so maybe can we see the next page? Just a quick question. If the oh, if the facsimile is unrelated to the text, as these guys would like it to be. And it can be re, yeah. Then, yeah. then how? Go back to that one. We'll go back one slide if you don't mind, Maven. Sorry, we got you <laughs> going all over the place. Drive Maven how, crazy today. How would Joseph Smith know that the which manner of the figures is called by the Chaldeans Kali? Kali Nas. How would he the know Nos, that? The Nas is at the very bottom. If the, the facsimile is unrelated to the text, how would he know that? Okay, that's enough. I'm good. <laughs> that's a good point. That's I, I like that. <laughs> he is admitting a new piece of information that connects the two that he wouldn't know unless he had been told by God that that's the connection. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So I hope John Gee's listening. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Skousen, too. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> Hi, guys. Anyway, uh, so Gee says, Abraham 114 was added in smaller hands, squeezed into the margin at the top of pay, the page, above the header. What header? There's no header. It's an online page. Um, ignoring the ruled left margin. So the left margin has a, a, a graphite uh, penciled mar uh, margin that runs down the page. Um, so he ignored it here because there's no character involved. And then they start with the character in the margin. And then they start following the margin because they don't want to write over the character. But um, so the, if the next slide will show you some other thing. There we are. So here's the he does it all pages. over the place. This is the top uh, mar. This is the top margins. Right here's the one we're talking about <laughs> on page two. The top and the, the last two have lines. You know, so, yeah, at the top, you have, th there's no margin on the top being left. So, maybe uh, you can show us the next slide. This is where it's slightly different. I took out that part. I took out the part. That's what it would look like before he inserted the cramped. It's not cramped at all. Uh -uh. You know, it, if, if you looked at it, it didn't look any different than the other stuff. 
So if I could describe this for people who are listening to this on audio, you, what you have is the the, <laughs> the four pages of the Frederick G. Williams translation manuscript. Yeah. It's the top of page two that has Abraham chapter one, verse 14. Yeah. And actually, even though John Gee is describing it as being cramped and it's over to the left and it's above the mar above the header where there is no header. Yeah. It looks exactly like page one. You see page one yeah. where it goes to the left of the margin mm -hmm. and it looks cramped, but he doesn't have any problem with that. I'm assuming because it fits in the text of the book of Abraham, right? What? What fits? The top of page, the language at the top of page one of the Frederick G. Williams manuscript. Though only the first line up there has a special character. Okay. Uh, that relates to the first character, I, I, my interpretation, I don't know about Brent, but my interpretation is that first character, it says something like uh, the uh, fifth degree in this, the set, set first part, crossed out second part, you know. Well, that very, very first line could have been added, not necessarily, but could have been added later. But still, if you take out that first line, you can tell it, He's just, he's writing at the top of the page. Not that much. He's not allowing that much space. Why would he leave that much space on the next page when it's they're tearing, tearing paper apart and trying to preserve it, you know? It's absurd, yeah. Right, and we do need to remember that paper was not as easy to come by back then. Well, they're tearing it, it apart. Today. They're tearing yeah. it apart. I mean, <laughs> you know, conserving. They're very, they, when you go through the, history of the church and all the documents related to the history of the church you can tell these guys uh they wrote over <laughs> they would write letters to each other and they would turn it upside down and then write keep on writing in between the lines another text they are know? conserving paper as much as they can yeah so what you've done here once again doing the same thing you did in the, uh, the earlier document is you took out the offending paragraph of verse 14 from the Frederick G. Williams translation. And when yeah. you do that and compare it to the other four pages at the top, it totally doesn't belong because now there's this huge space at the top of page two when there is no such huge space at the top of pages yeah. one, three, or four. Now, if we could show the next slide, it gets even worse. Um, Maven. There we are. So what we're looking at, this is Warren Parish's document that they're writing simultaneously hey that one's not at the top of warren Parrish's page it's in the middle how how do, how do you explain that that's why they don't like the, the they don't like the uh simultaneous dictation explanation either and they try to squirm their way out of that you know this looks really damning for that particular position yeah it was so the catalyst theory has to explain this. No one's going to try. That's what I said. I said uh, somewhere. I said somewhere. And Did John we'll Gee for him? <laughs> John Gee mentions the Frederick G. Williams manuscript and his opinion about that. Does he even try to deal with the Warren Parish manuscript, where it's so obviously part of the translation and part of the dictation? Oh, uh, Gee. Yes. Um. Yeah, he doesn't. He he went. He has gone on and on on in 
the interpreter and wrote a review of um, the Helglid Jensen volume yeah. and just tries to to criticize them because they mentioned the simultaneous dictation and he tries to get out of it, but he, that's not successful either. That's just as bad as this. This appears to really be conclusive to me that if you have two individuals, Frederick G. Williams and Warren Parrish, who are scribing while dictation is occurring by Joseph Smith, and you've got Frederick G. Williams, who maybe it's at the top. I mean, it's definitely at the top of the page. Maybe it's a little cramped. I don't know. I think you did a good job of dismantling that argument. But then the clinchers, when you looked at the Warren Parrish manuscript, and it's not cramped, it's not angled, it's nothing except part of the translation. Yeah, well, sometimes they want to argue that Warren Parrish copied Frederick uh, G. Williams' manuscript uh, because it's too neat. Well, it has these, like I said, three places where the same emendation takes place uh, in line. Nobody copies, like if Parrish is copying uh, Frederick G. Williams, he wouldn't write something, you know, like three words, uh, cross both of them, cross it out, and then keep going. <laughs> you know, it's a dead giveaway. So... Hauglid and Jensen, in that volume, in the introduction to these two um, manuscripts, mentions the simultaneous dictation. And you know that's, something? That's what I, literary critics do. When I first read Hauglid's comment about you on your Facebook page and that he now adopts the simultaneous translation, yeah. I had no idea what he was talking about at that point. But now, not only do I see what he's talking about, I see why it's so important and why it is yeah. that John Gee and company are fighting so hard against it. Yeah, well, you know, they, they uh, Occam's razor just brutalizes their theories. And so does Dan Vogel. <laughs> are there any more slides? Uh, no, <laughs> I think, I think that's yeah. it. Okay. Well, wonderful. Now what we have here for a conclusion is a video of John Gee last December. He was doing an ask the, was it ask the, it was ask the Egyptologist segment for fair and Scott Gordon, the president of fair is there. He's asking him these questions that have been submitted beforehand. And he's asking John Gee the question of whether John Gee makes room for the catalyst theory. And it takes a number of minutes for John Gee to answer this. And part of this is because he answers at somewhat of a glacial pace. But the thing that was significant about this and what struck me at the time is that John Gee has spent his career arguing as hard as he can for the missing scroll theory which means that Joseph Smith really could translate Egyptian and that the book of Abraham really is written on the papyrus in Egyptian to be translated. Only that papyrus or that part of the papyrus was lost. So therefore we don't have it, which is of course different from the catalyst theory and contradicted by the catalyst theory by 
the theory be, being that Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian, or if he could, he didn't hear. He thought he was translating Egyptian. He said he was translating Egyptian, but he was mistaken. Actually, when Joseph Smith thought he was translating the Egyptian into the English, he was getting a revelation from God that kind of got substituted in the process. So Joseph Smith is receiving this revelation from, from God, unbeknownst to Joseph Smith, writing it down as if it's the translation of the book of Abraham, but it's not. It's really the catalyst theory. That's why these are contradictory and competing theories. One says Joseph Smith could translate Egyptian and did. One is saying, well, it doesn't make any difference if he could because he didn't. Do I have that about right? Those are the two theories that you just described. Yeah, uh, one's what one is a fundamentalistic kind of approach, uh, a literalistic approach. Joe Smith just literally translated, but with by the gift of God, that's how he did it. And that's the he, catalyst he theory. Yeah, he or wasn't so, tra actually translating. He didn't understand Egyptian, okay. um, and that's what what the Gale and the Egyptian alphabets are there to show and they come first there to show that he's looking at the at at the characters and the characters in the margins of these documents he's he's putting the characters there you know catalyst theory how does that fit into catalyst theory why is he writing these uh char egyptian characters he's being careful about keeping a book and a record of the meaning of these characters what does that have to do with the catalyst theory and he did this while he was doing while he was doing the translation character by character. That's what Warren Paris said in 1838 was I sat by him and wrote the translation uh, as he as he translated the characters, but through through divine revelation or whatever he said. So he it's the characters he translated the characters. He didn't just dictate a revelation. Right. And this is why, of course, the people like John Gee, who are against the catalyst theory or have historically been so, have done everything they could to get Joseph Smith out of the room and just have the scribes being involved with the Gale. And the scribes are doing this stuff and trying to match up the translation, which Joseph Smith has already done by revelation with the characters from the papyri, because Joseph Smith can't be involved in that from the missing scroll theory, because if he is, it shows he can't translate Egyptian. Well, the missing scroll theory is just simple logic. Uh, Joseph Smith is a prophet. He had the gift of translation. The translation he gave doesn't match the papyri or the book of the Lahore papyrus. Therefore, there must be another papyrus. Simple. And that's how you get the missing scroll theory. Yes. And then you have, unfortunately, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language coming to whack that theory over the head. So Joseph Smith has to get out of the way. Then you have the facsimiles and the translations coming to whack that theory in the head. So they must be done away with per Royal Skousen. And you have Abraham chapter one, verses 12 and 14, whacking that theory in the head. So they also must be gotten rid of. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, they, um, the apologists are preoccupied with inventing uh, ad hoc theories, you know, provisional theories to answer or explain away evidence. And what scholars should be doing is 
with each new piece of evidence should confirm your previous theory, maybe even open up avenues of further theory. The apologists hate new evidence. Anything, any new evidence that comes, it just ruins their theory, and they have to spend a lot of time trying trying to get out of it. New wants it. Uh, far as I, you know, I wanted to understand it uh, as it unfolded, how Joseph Smith viewed it, how it came about, and uh, the apologist chronology doesn't fit. No historian. Can, can ever uh, follow the chronology that Guillaume Milstein, the reverse chronology, messes everything up. Uh, and if you get rid of that, it all fits. That's what I wanted to know because I'm a biographer of Joseph Smith, and I have to get the chronology right at the very least. Right. And so here we've got... Note, just go ahead, note that one, one side is willing to sit down with the other side and go through these documents in front of an audience and have a conversation about how do you explain this or how do you explain that? Just yeah. notice the other side refuses to sit in real time and have that conversation. Well, you know, um, I think that most of the, most of the apologists that matter are connected to the institutions. That's a problem. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm in the way. I've spoken to lots of those guys away from the institution. And yeah, again, the what they say privately the, is. The demands of the institution are getting in the way of scholarly progress. And plus some of them feel like they've um, made covenants to defend the faith, even at the cost of their own reputations, yeah. their good name among men. And that's what some of them, are doing, I believe. And the church rewards them for that. The, the church, nod, nod, wink, wink. Um, they benefit employment in other ways that, that really would, they would take a loss. Guys like Robin Jensen or Mark Ashurst McGee or Stephen Harper, those guys would take a hit if they said, if they said more things, right? Well, and it's just like anything. Uh, I left, or I, I lost my faith at a very young age before I had a lot invested, especially a lot of money. But uh, so I'm less, I'm not so uh, bitter or anything because I didn't, I was very young uh, when I transitioned out of it. So, uh, but the longer you're in, just like any Ponzi scheme, like any, uh, uh, I said, bamboozle. Ponzi bamboozle uh, there's a million words for this but i can't think of any of them right now that was carl sagan's <laughs> word so yeah i remember that so uh the further you get in uh the harder it is to get out mm -hmm. you know uh that and you keep going just a little bit further a little bit more and the more that the, the far longer it goes the more you have invested everything it is so hard, so hard to undo all the fr family, friends, and the way the church is organized. To there's a uh, as being clannish and family centered and all that kind of stuff is makes it far more difficult, 
far more you to just walk away. They always go, well, you can leave it, but you can't stop talking about it kind of a thing. And, uh, and the thing is, is that they're the reason I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> okay. I am bound and determined. If this, if it's the last thing I do, and it may be to get to this video of John Gee from last December and John Gee here does an amazing thing because what it is, is that he has spent his entire career arguing for the missing scroll theory. And he's done it by showing all these connections, Oli Shem and Obladi and Oblada, and all these things from the book of Abraham, which he say, says have connections to the ancient world. In fact, it was just about a year ago that he published a paper in The Interpreter that argued, number one, that Joseph Smith actually correctly identified the four canopic jar gods, in fact, simile one, which was an amazing thing that he argued. But not only that, did he argue that he got them right, but he argued that the odds of Joseph Smith getting them right, which he didn't, but the odds of him getting them right would be astronomical. So he is so committed to this missing scroll theory that he goes to those kind of links. And yet, and yet, December of 2021, just this past December, he's on doing this Ask the Egyptologist segment with Scott Gordon from FAIR. And he's asked this question, what does he think about the catalyst theory? And the thing that shocks me is that he now is going to present as holding the catalyst theory as basically on an equal footing with the missing scroll theory. Remember, missing scroll theory is Joseph Smith could translate Egyptian. Catalyst theory is he couldn't translate Egyptian. So he may, he may put the, um, the catalyst theory a little bit below the, the missing scroll theory, but not much. And this is what is remarkable to me because I wonder what has gone on with John Gee that he's willing now to give the catalyst theory an equal place at the table with his missing scroll theory. And what it suggests to me is that John Gee presents as being much more confident about the connections that Joseph Smith made between the papyrus and ancient Egypt. He presents that way, but he doesn't really believe it in his heart because if he did, then it would be missing papyrus all the way, missing scroll all the way. In catalyst theory, get out of here. We can show Joseph Smith new about Egyptian from this evidence, this evidence, and this evidence, but he doesn't. And watch him here. And I apologize that um, it's going to take a, a few minutes to do this, but I think it's important enough to listen to everything he has to say, starting at the timestamp, I think it's 9.25. It's going to go on for, well, about eight minutes or so, but but listen to it, and we'll we'll stop and make really? comments along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing, really. And uh, go ahead. Here's here's uh, Scott Gordon. He's going to ask the question. On to the next question, then. So there's a couple of theories. There's the catalyst theory. There's the missing scroll theory. Are you open to the catalyst theory, or do you remain confident the Book of Abraham was the missing scroll? Well, I think I'm the scholar most associated with the missing scroll theory. Um, and I think I've probably laid out most of the arguments that are used for that theory. Um, and so there are three theories. There's basically one, the one pushed by the anti-Mormons, which says we, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham from the fragments that we currently have. Can we stop there for a second, Maven? Um, because this also is remarkable. He's going to get to the other two theories, which are the his missing scroll theory and the catalyst theory. But he starts off saying there's three theories. And the first one 
is that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from the fragments that we already have, and that he labels that as the anti-Mormon argument. That's what anti-Mormons say. I think that's pretty obvious from the, the evidence that that's what happened. What do you think about his characterization of that argument, Dan? Well, he also hints at the beginning of this uh, interview that uh, he, he believes that people who question his theories are persecuting him religiously. And that's not what we're doing. But he also hints by the quotes that he gives from uh, the New Testament, Jesus said that, you know, you'll be attacked from within kind of a passage. I can't remember which passage it was exactly. But in other words, you, you would be, he associates his religious persecution coming from even his fellow brethren in the church who disagree that hold the catalyst theory and disagree with his theories, which is shocking. And that's why I put it in my video on the critique. When I critiqued this video, I put that because it was so shocking to me. I just said, you, you know, people have to have to have to hear this. It's, it's not the, uh, and I, and I said in my response that I'm not persecuting John Gee religiously. I'm only questioning his theories and you, no one should confuse questioning a scholar or an apologist theories as as uh, attacking the church directly, even because these are just these are scholars too, and they make choices, and they're not they're trying to defend the church, but their ideas are not the church, you know, and they even say, I you know, the church is not responsible for what I say. So how can you confuse it? with attacking his theories or questioning or in a scholarly way his theories as attacking the church it's not the same thing and and aren't there aren't there scholars in the church who also believe that joseph smith thought he was translating the papyri fragments that we have in our possession robin jensen brian haglid when he was in um uh, mark ashurst mcgee and don bradley yeah Yes, they're hardly yeah. anti-Mormons, I think, and yet that's how he characterizes so I, them. Yeah, so he he has them in the same category. Well, he he does say that they take the anti-Mormon side, whereas they're taking the right side, the scholarly side. They're not taking the anti-Mormon side. It's like right. that he's trying to beat the anti-Mormons. You know, he's on a mm -hmm. mission, and. From God. When his fellow brethren or sisters uh, take uh, an, make an interpretation that even broaches an anti-Mormon quote-unquote position, they are siding with the enemy against mm -hmm. him. That's just not very healthy thinking. No, and John we're gonna Gee. John Gee, We're gonna continue with this clip. I'll try not to interrupt anymore. <laughs> I will just say that if any of the audience members find listening to this answer a little bit lengthy, tedious, and boring, you can do what I can do. And you can imagine a scantily clad Carrie Fisher lying supine at John Gee's feet. Um, <laughs> the missing scrolls theory says that. that there were other papyri that Joseph Smith have that we no longer have. And that is a better match for 
where the Book of Abraham comes from. And the third theory is that there that the papyri served as a catalyst for Joseph Smith to get revelation, and that it wasn't on any of the the scrolls. Uh, so it wouldn't, now it wouldn't matter what was on the scrolls because it just right. it just inspired him to write something. It inspired him to get revelation. Now, mm -hmm. um, whether you're inside or outside of the church kind of depends on what you think the source of that revelation is or what you might think revelation is, but that's those are the three general theories. Uh, well, the one theory, the I think the that the Book of Abraham comes from scrolls that we currently have, that's readily falsifiable. So it's scientific in, in that sort of sense because you can demonstrate that that one doesn't, isn't true. And can we I think stop that's for a second there? The... Notice he says that the theory, the anti-Mormon theory that Joseph Smith translated or presents translating from the scrolls that we have is readily falsifiable because it's obvious that the book of Abraham doesn't translate from the Egyptian that's on the fragments that we have. So what he's saying is the, the the evidence that shows that Joseph Smith was translating from those very characters on those very fragments is falsifiable because he wasn't doing it. But he's framing it in such a way as saying, oh, well, that shows that that theory doesn't work. Yeah. Are you tracking with Dr. Gee on this, Dan? Uh, not completely. Okay, we'll continue. <laughs> Maybe we'll get better. Um, the critics prefer that theory. Right. Um, but it's also falsifiable in the sense that if you go back and look at eyewitness statements, they indicate that it's not on the scrolls that we currently, or the fragments that we currently have. We don't have any scrolls. Mm -hmm. And so it's also falsifiable in that sense. Um, and so that leaves the other two theories. And for a long time, I couldn't find anything that would indicate any evidence that would indicate which one of those might be preferable. Uh, but in the end, I found two or three pieces of evidence that seemed there that indicate that the missing scroll theory accounts for more of the evidence than the catalyst theory. And so that is the one that I prefer mm -hmm. because that's where the evidence tends to, to indicate to you. I'm, I'm open to the, the catalyst theory. I considered it seriously for years. I haven't, it, I haven't considered it seriously in years because it does, there's not enough evidence for it and there's more evidence to indicate that Joseph Smith, so one of the pieces of evidence besides that the statement that Joseph Smith makes when he introduces the book of Abraham that this is records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt but there's also one of the last discourses he made in Nauvoo quotes language from the book of Abraham mm -hmm. and Joseph Smith said that he got that it says it's Abraham's reasoning and says that he learned it from just translating a papyrus that's in his house. 
Oh, okay. Just a second, Maven, because John Gee is using this quotation. It's from the King Follett discourse, or it might be the Sermon at the Grove from 1844, Joseph Smith referring to his translation of the book of Abraham and saying, I learned this from my translation of uh, the papyri, right? But he's saying that that he's saying it like that's an evidence for the missing scroll theory as opposed to the catalyst theory when actually it would support either one equally. What do you think, Dan? No, I, I, it's referring, what he's trying to say is that he, what he translated is from the papyri that's in his house. Skousen would say, but he was wrong about that. Exactly. It's the catalyst theory. The catalyst theory uh, answers that evidence. Doesn't require the facts to change, yeah. Well, right. It's, it's equal. That supports the catalyst theory just equally as much as it supports the missing scroll theory. And yet here's John Gee saying that this is one of the evidences for the missing scroll theory that he thinks makes it superior to the catalyst theory. That's the only point I wanted to make here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now I see why uh, Skousen said, oh, show this to John Gee. Yeah. We're going to ram this up his took us with a hot poker. He's, he's saying he, so Skousen is going towards a revelation, the catalyst theory, and Gee is not, right? And maybe he's trying to be a little friendly, not too combative in saying it's a decent second uh, theory so he doesn't get in too much trouble with Skousen or some of the other uh, catalyst theory uh, advocates. But I will tell you what I am struck by is the duplicity, and I hope that's not too strong a word to use here, but the duplicity of Dr. John Gee in presenting this way, when within a year before this interview in December 2021, he had written and published in The Interpreter an article saying that Joseph Smith's ability to actually translate the names of the four gods under the altar are astronomical. (laughs) In other words, it's astronomical that the missing scroll theory is correct because Joseph Smith really could translate Egyptian. He did have an understanding of the ancient Egyptian. And here he's coming out now and he's getting all mealy-mouthed about it. What I think this shows is that John Gee is not at all convinced of the arguments that he has made in favor of Joseph Smith understanding Egyptian and ancient Egypt. This is really how he feels. He's been making these arguments all along. He hasn't been convincing himself. He's been convincing precious few others. And now he's coming clean. Well, uh, he's created the avenue of escape in a way that uh, in the future, you may be able to transition transition to the catalyst theory if he has to. Oh, and he's having to because his boat, (laughs) his, his boat of the missing scroll theory is going down. It's going mm. down like that little boat did down the gutter at the beginning of it. And another thing I would say, the uh, the testimony that he he and Milstein bring forward uh, of people they think have um, put the Book of Abraham on the missing scroll rather than on the fragments that were cut into pieces and framed uh, is no good. They they. They use seven 
witnesses. Nielstein published in the Journal of, uh, of Mormon History an article that I think should have never been published because it's totally awful. Um, none of their witnesses say anything like what they say. I know. And, and here he's talking about, you know, we've got the witness statements and that's just another bald faced lie by Java because well, they was, don't uh, say what he says they said. Even when he publishes it, he takes one yeah. excerpt from one witness, one excerpt from another and puts them together to make uh, a statement that neither one of them said about the, the long scroll being identified as the scroll that contained the book of Abraham. Yeah. So, uh, one of their witnesses, Charlotte Haven, a uh, young girl that visited Nauvoo, and uh, Lucy Smith showed her and others the mummy, and she brought out a long scroll. Now, the scroll Joseph Smith had was like uh, five feet long, and the fragments that we have now that are chopped up, uh, maybe a couple of feet or so maybe three feet which left uh, at least a two foot intact scroll that would have had facsimile three like robert rittner mentioned in his interview would have had uh facsimile three and a couple of, uh, columns and you have to remember that it's only four inches it's only like four inches wide it's a little and mm -hmm. uh, two feet long that's a long scroll, you know? And um, so she rolled it out on the table and started talking about it. And that's what Charlotte Haven wrote about. And they go, and, and Lucy says, this is the record of Abraham. She didn't say, this is what was published, you know, or this is what the book of Abraham came from. This is the record of Abraham, which is totally true. And well, not really, but it's horror. Horse Papyrus, what Joseph thought was the Book of Abraham, and it's laying on the table in front of her. And so th they try to say, well, see, it's on that scroll, not on those fragments. So what, what are you talking about? Uh, this, this, this scroll was seen uh, by one of the professor of Egyptology in, in um, uh, St. Louis Museum, and he described it as, you know, being an intact scroll and described the facsimile three. Um, so uh, they have no evidence, no witnesses, nothing. And they've misconstrued all those witnesses. Those witnesses didn't have the knowledge that they're looking for. They had, they weren't in a position to answer the question that they're trying to ask of these sources. Very bad methodology, historical methodology. Very bad. Right. Well, the methodology, as is evident, and as Carrie Mulstein actually admitted on the record, is to start with your conclusion that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that he could translate Egyptian into English, and then all the evidence must be chopped and put together and twisted and distorted in order to make it lead to that conclusion. Yep. Yeah. Well, they manufacture... They they look for these little um, places to invent arguments. They're inventing arguments. They're looking for arguments. Anything they're throwing anything at it at, at uh, the criticisms. These are all you know terrible scholarship and ad hoc hypotheses. 
So let me make a point here. Yeah, and let uh, me make it. Oh, go ahead. Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability and uh, reverse engineering on their end. Yes. Yeah. And so let me just make it really clear that the way that Joseph Smith presented and the way that everybody understood around him, the scribes, et cetera, is that he's translating from Egyptian characters into English. Duh. It is only after it became evident beyond dispute that Joseph Smith was not translating and could not translate Egyptian characters into English that the catalyst theory now emerges as an answer to this problem, which is he thought he was translating the Egyptian, but he wasn't really. It's a revelation coming down from God. And this is why Joseph Smith presented his translating and everybody understood him as translating, but he wasn't really translating. It's a, it's a desperation play in my <clears throat> book. But what John Gee is doing now is he's saying, well, missing scroll, catalyst theory, and they're basically about equal. You can take your pick. The problem is, is that these are not just different theories. They are competing theories, and they are actually mutually exclusive theories. One says Joseph Smith could translate by the gift and power of God, Egyptian into English. The other one says he could not. That's what I mean by mutually conflicting and inconsistent theories. And what this is like as an attorney, what this is like if you're a defense attorney and say you're defending some guy who's charged with murder, you want to have a defense. A defense is a good thing, okay? But what you never want to do, this is actually something that attorneys joke about, hopefully they never actually do this, is argue to the jury inconsistent theories of innocence of your client. And the example of that would be, my client was nowhere near the place when the murder was committed. He was out of state when this guy was killed. But... If he was there, then he was acting in self-defense. That is the classic idea of inconsistent defenses, right? And believe it or not, juries are not really receptive to that kind of a, an inconsistent defense. They would say, well, make up your mind. Either he's out of town and he wasn't there or he's defending himself. But don't try and tell us that he was out of town. And if we don't buy that, then he was uh, actually defending himself. And this is what John Gee is doing now. He's saying that you can believe that Joseph Smith was translating Egyptian or you can believe that he couldn't translate Egyptian. And it's up to you to decide. Those are mutually inconsistent theories. And if he's presenting this to anybody who's objective, like a jury is supposed to be, they would see it for what it is. That's what I'm saying. Any comments? We may end here with this video because we do want to get to some some call-ins and it's getting a bit late. I would like to say that the only way out that I see is for them to claim that the book of Abraham, that Joseph Smith believed the book of Abraham was a revelation, but that he also believed he could use deception in order to convince others that it was. You mean the most obvious explanation? That's mine. <laughs> well, that's why you're brilliant. Apparently, somebody named Dust is making some comments in the um, the live chat. I'll have to check those out well, later. But maybe they'll call. Maybe, but once Dust leaves, it's going to be dust in the wind. <laughs> Sorry, little Kansas humor. Should we open it up for for calls at this point? I think we've heard enough from Doctor Gee. 
Yeah, we've had the number up there for a bit. 662 Mormons or 662 667 666 Mark of the Beast and a seven to finish it off. Uh, we've got one caller, but I'm a little worried about this one. So I, either he's joking and he's got something else to say or this could go sideways. But uh, the Jewish religion is the one true church. That's So let's see where this goes. I hope it's about um, the book of Abraham, but okay. Caller, are are you on the air? Are you there? Oh, give me one second. Oops, sorry about that. Let's um it's long distance to... from Jerusalem. Yeah, give me one second. Just yeah, give me patience. Okay. I was talking, just talking to him. Sorry about that. We appreciate everything that you do, Bill. You are yeah, the master of high much. tech. It's not much. Let's uh all right, call. Are you there? Got a call from Brent Medkef. Are you he kidding says, me? I know Brent. Uh, I know you disagree. I love you too. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, caller, are you there? <laughs> okay, sorry. Oh, it's still not. Yeah. Let me uh, let me try something else here. I don't know why. So this is uh, the caller who is named the Jewish. I, uh, the it Jews just says PFM. Church. I'm going to try one more time. It's the only call we've got in the bank. Are you there, caller? Man, I can't. Well, this is bad. Yeah. This caller, I'm going to try one more time. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you guys hear it? All right. Perfect. Can you hold it up to the microphone, Bill? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead with your comment, my friend. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to thank Dan Vogel for uh, his work on the history of Joseph Smith and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a source and critical text edition. I do want a, a copy. So thank you, Dan, for uh, all your work on that. Um, my thank you. Is, I've been going down this rabbit hole since about 2003. And uh, recently I've come across the Jewish religion that seems to point to it as being the true religion on earth. And it's kind of the Achilles heel of Mormonism. And let me just give you three points, and then I can take your comments offline. Number one, the Jews had the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek was a Jew, so was Abraham. And they never had an apostasy from their religion. So all the way from 3,600 years ago until today, they have the Melchizedek priesthood or the power to act in God's name. So for you, Bill, or RFM, this is another line of uh, opportunity for some of your shows. Number two, the Jews have living prophets. The Mormons claim they're the only religion that has living prophets. But the Jews have living prophets, and they're called sages. Number three... They actually receive revelation and they canonize. And uh, that's something that's dead in Mormonism. Where's so, all this taking place? Your comments offline. I appreciate oh, you taking well, my call. Thank you. Where's all, oh, excuse me, before you go. Uh, is he gone? He's not, he's not going to really hear that probably. <laughs> okay. Because I'm going, where's all this taking place? I don't know where they've got living prophets or where they're receiving revelation, where they're canonizing it. And Melchizedek <laughs> was not Jewish. And even if those three points are true, that you know, there's a thousand other negative points behind it, like that. It just uh, all yeah, right. Melchizedek anyway. is this mysterious figure, this king of Salem, who comes sort of out of nowhere. We don't know anything about his project or his his the Canaanite parents. priest. 
Yeah, we don't know anything about his parents. We don't know anything about can it hold the Melchizedek priesthood. <laughs> but he took tithes oh, from can... Abraham. Yeah, how could Adam hold the Melchizedek priesthood? There was a I was lot just of say Melchizedek priesthood in the Old Testament. That's Joseph Smith. And I was just going to say Melchizedek appears and leaves, and we don't know anything else about him, which is probably why he ends up getting described as being without beginning of days or end of years. Yeah. Because we don't know anything about his beginning or his end. He just comes in for a cameo. And he's very important to Paul, right? He's very well, important to Paul. Paul because... wrote Hebrews. <laughs> okay. Well, the author of Hebrews. He's very important to whoever the heck wrote that. The idea that, well, but Paul refers to it like in Galatians too, I think, where he thinks this is very, very important that there are these kinds of things going on. And Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek, who is a greater person than Abraham. And Paul is trying to talk in such a way and argue in such a way as to diminish the absolute universal significance of. Uh, I think he was Abraham. talking about uh, like the Midrash or Haggadah or whatever, where, hmm. where the Jews used to argue about uh, under what authority did the patriarchs uh give animal sacrifice and they would speculate it's a matter of speculation uh and not revelation that that uh, they held the a priesthood uh of a kind but they couldn't hold the priesthood because of the, they were of the wrong lineage you know the priesthood wasn't uh introduced until they had the uh, the law of moses and the levites uh administered the law of Moses and animal sacrifice. So there is a lot of, uh, and they use Psalms about 110, about uh, Abraham or, or uh, Melchizedek uh, getting getting authority from Abraham. And they play with the wording of that uh, Psalm. I did a little bit of that in my book. Yeah. That, that was the only call, and I turned it off about 10 seconds ago just because there wasn't anything else up there. So oh. um, we can, you know, whatever you guys want to do to wrap up. But, yeah, there weren't any other calls in the bank. So Oop, I can't hear you. I was typing and doing a little research. I think you're right about that being in Hebrews 7. Dan, Hebrews where, 7. The, yeah, where the argument that Paul is, no, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that, the Levitical priesthood starts with Levi, and yet Levi's ancestor, Abraham, is paying tithes to somebody else. So you wouldn't pay tithes unless you're paying it to someone who is a greater authority than you. And so he uses that in order to argue against the Jewish uh, version of the priesthood being the be-all and end-all of things. Yeah, well, and so... Uh... Alma chapter 13 talks about the high priesthood and Melchizedek that there implies that there is a lineage and it borrows a lot of uh, the language from Hebrews 7, which mm -hmm. wasn't written yet. And if anybody wants to look at that deeper, like your caller, they should look at uh, Brent's book, A New Approaches to the Book of Mormon, a signature book, so 1993. Uh, there was an article in there by David Wright. And David Wright uh, talks about Hebrews 7 being used in Alma 13. It's an mm -hmm. anachronism. Right. And he got excommunicated for his efforts, didn't he? Yes. 
One of the great scholars that Mormonism has produced in Hebrew studies, so great that he went on to have a, or did at the time, I think, had obtained a professorship at, what is it? Brandeis? Brandeis, thank you. Brandeis University. One of the few non-Jewish people to be so expert in the Jewish uh, language or Hebrew language. That he has a professorship there, and he writes an article that shows that there is a dependence between Hebrew 7 and Alma 13, which is a commentary on Hebrew 7. And for that, he ends up getting excommunicated. And our very own David Bakavoy was one of his students. That's right. <laughs> it's a small world. Mm. Yeah. Too smart for your own britches, folks. Too smart for this church. That's right. Well, it, you know, there's the a problem the when they say, oh, you're going to study your way right out of the church. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Research is not the answer. Why would that be? Why would that be the foregone conclusion that you're going to study yourself out of the church? If something is true and accurate, wouldn't you be studying yourself into it? Well, that's what they used to say to me anyway. Oh, yeah. And, and they I were very prophetic. So the prophecy they ever got right. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Uh, I haven't mentioned this before. It's a very short one. But around 2012, 2013, I'm still going to church. And there was a senior missionary couple who were in the ward. And I can't remember who the brother was, but he was, of course, retired. He was an older guy, very nice guy. And I can't remember what our interactions were, but they must have been something because I remember him once coming up to me in the chapel before or after a meeting and telling me, Radio Free Mormon, he says, you are the only person I've ever met who is smart enough to intellectually apostatize. Mm. Is that a compliment? I'm not sure, but it was memorable. Backhanded one, huh? Yes. So you're smart enough to figure out that the church isn't what it claims to be? What what's what are they, what? Some people apostatize for other reasons, you know. But yeah, some for fun reasons. Yeah, like church is just boring. <laughs> oh yeah, my gosh! No, no more hard benches. Yeah. Oh yeah, those benches are just really a pain in the. Mm, yes, is that it? There's no nobody else wants to call in and talk. Yeah, I, to I a, ended it at the or? time because there we had gone like. 25 minutes and not a you know other than him there was nobody else that had called in and i think it's because the backyard is, professor again maybe in the last five minutes but it's been off since then so um he's probably calling me now but my phone is in the other room and turned off just in case my, he got that idea yeah my hunch is that you know we're we're talking in kind of Where complex get that thing. Idea, RFM? i have no idea he's diabolical the backyard professor why he would think of calling somebody in the middle of a live show no he's evil <laughs> He is oh, somebody does that, yeah. He is the yeah. sea witch, I tell you. I think it's just a this is a complex issue, and I, I think people appreciate it, but they would struggle maybe to dive in and um articulate a response or a comment about it. That makes sense. By the way, I do feel like uh the individual who did call in who made it in, uh it may have sounded like a bit of dog piling, and I apologize if that's the way it sounded. Uh I wish he had been able to um complete his thought with the examples of the statements he was making about Jews continuing to have prophets and continuing to write scripture and have them canonized because I'm unaware of that. I don't know everything about Judaism. There's a lot of different branches. Maybe there is a branch 
uh, I'm guessing a smaller branch that might make those claims. But generally in Judaism, uh, they're, they have the same view of the Old Testament as Christians have of the Bible, which is uh, that's that's it. And there's not going to be any more. That's all we need. And now the backyard that better not be the backyard professor. Can you just hang up on him right now? He heard me. He heard you what saying? Well, you know. Oh my gosh. I am driving to Idaho tonight. Idaho. While you <coughs> sleep, pal. Oh gosh. Okay, so what do I think? <laughs> I think that uh um okay, Dan, is anything going is any intelligence being communicated to you right now? No. Okay. So we'll probably just uh, close off the show, but it is the backyard professor. The backyard professor called in. Ask him, ask him if he called thank me first. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, yes. I he called me first. Brilliant. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Talk about man. stating the obvious. You might as well say the sky is blue. <laughs> just say, yeah, ba Dan. Tell him, no, he's yeah, just complimenting the hell out of me. I can't get him to stop. <laughs> we should probably I would, finish. I have that, that problem myself <laughs> when I'm talking to him. He's always complimenting the hell out of you, Dan. He's not <laughs> calling me to do that. No, he's not. He's you just you be, should start calling me, me Mr. Shirts, you won't stop. Brother <laughs> Who knows where this might lead? So anyway, thank you so much, Dan, for being on the show tonight. We had a great time. Yeah. This is very, very important. The uh, the the email from Professor Skousen, he's jumping the shark, and he's going uh, totally gonzo on getting rid of the facsimiles and those two verses from the Book of Abraham in order to make sure that his catalyst theory can <laughs> sail forward without hitting those icebergs. Yeah. Icebergs? Yeah, it was sort of a, like a Titanic reference. I don't know if it went over very well. Too soon? All right. <laughs> okay, so we're ready to go. I'll let okay, you I'll... and the backyard we're... professor continue oh, this conversation, have a conversation in private. Here. Yes. Yeah. Make okay. plans. Yeah. And I'll go Perfect. check my phone and see that he called me three times before he called you. And I'll, and I'll play Kerry Molstein's quote. Okay, as we very close good. Close out the show. Thank you, everyone. And so I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true, and on these points, we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find.